0: This episode is brought to you by Scott Keogh Horsemanship, offering a wide range of services from horse breaking and training to clinics and private lessons. Tested, tried and true horsemanship coaching and advice. Clear and easy to understand horsemanship advice. A common sense approach with no showmanship or gimmicks. Go to www.skhorsemanship.com for more information, products and a range of Scott's DVDs. Sport Horse 505 due to come out any day. Follow Scott on Instagram and Facebook.
1: Take five and go go and recover. Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the saddle. Hey folks, Scott Keogh here. I've hijacked the From the Saddle podcast again and I'm super excited about today's guest. Uh, when the subject comes up about who is the best all-round performance horse trainer in Australia, it's normally this guy first and daylight second. You're talking about five reigning futurity wins, I think three cutting futurity wins cloncurry stockman's challenge a couple of times this guy's won it all but one thing i've learned later in life is gold buckles don't mean you're a good person okay this guy that i've got here now he's a great person in and out of the arena if you're smart enough to put yourself around this man you're going to be in a lot better place so today i'm very fortunate to have the one and only ian francis good morning ian
0: Good Morning, uh, Scott. I, I think I'm going to hang up. I don't know if I can uh, match that intro. <laughs> mate,
1: that's. All, I was just. I was hoping you weren't going to leave me hanging. I thought we were better mates than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we'll go on with it tentatively. Yeah. Righto, mate. Look, very good to
0: have you here, Ian. What have you been doing this morning, mate? Oh, I've been mean, uh, just you know, straightening up delivering living a tractor up to have some repairs done on it, and out, out feeding and checking bulls and those kind of chores that need to get done.
1: Yeah, right. It never ends, mate. So, um, look, one thing I always try and remind myself when I'm running a wreck is uh, there was a time when Ian Francis couldn't do this. Um, I know no one gets the start at the finish and everyone starts at the start. So, Ian, uh, I'd love to know about the very early days, Ian Francis. Like, were you born into the horse job? Was your dad a good hand? Tell me
0: about the very early days. No, not not, not at all. Um, my dad came from the uh, from the rural sector, but didn't really enjoy it that much, and uh, he moved to the city uh, in his uh, late teens and early twenties, and uh, he got apprenticeship as a carpenter eventually. And um, he, uh, yeah, he didn't want, really want to go back to the rural sector. We we lived on the, just on the outskirts of, of town, right on the fringe of of, of and uh, so I was kind of had a little bit of footy, foot in the city and a little bit of a foot. In the country, you could go to the to the uh, back gate and look over the back fence, and you could see the dairy cattle that uh, ran, you know, adjacent to the town there. So that's kind of where I where I grew up, and uh, with, with a family that weren't the, the slightest bit interested in uh, in the rural sector, and uh, and I obviously was. And I, I tormented them or, or tortured them, I suppose, over the years. When we drive somewhere, I'd be commenting on the colours of the cows and the colours of the horses and, or whatever, and uh, they'd roll their eyes and here we go again kind of deal. So that, that's kind of where I, I, I got started, yeah. So uh, first pony, mate,
1: when, when did you get to – were you pony clubbing or riding up and down the street? No,
0: you know, I used to go to the pony club on my push bike and, and envy the kids that whose um, parents would, would uh, buy them a horse and, and take an interest in them. My, I had that deal where, you know, every Christmas or, or or birthday, they'd say, what would you like? And I would say, a horse, no, we can't afford one and we'll have nowhere to run it and you'll lose interest in it. And, rah, rah, rah. and this went on for quite every year, for years and years and um so i never got that horse through via that way uh what i i did was i i used to go and make myself really uh useful to anyone who had cattle and horses within push bike riding distance of my house and um with the idea that if, if i made myself really useful to them i'd get maybe get the opportunity to uh maybe ride occasionally and um work with the cattle and so forth and uh and that's how I, I got got my leg in the door and worked from, for free. And also, too, I had this kind of idea that I wasn't going to be a, an academic of any sort. Not, not interested in that. And uh, my future somehow I knew was going to be in that direction, even though it was, it was being discouraged very strenuously by my parents. And uh, so I felt kind of figured if I could make myself really useful to those people. One day a job had come up and they'd say, uh, you know, do you know where we can find a good kid?" And they'd say, "Yeah, nowhere there's a good kid. You know, he'll kind of do most anything you ask him to do, and he's polite and stuff like that." And that's kind of how I, I got my leg in the door with that with the rural sector.
1: Yeah, right. So upon leaving school, mate, did you go ringing or working on a place or something?
0: No, not initially. I did that on every spare day, every spare holiday, or. Every weekend and, and stuff, I I would go work for people a lot. Most of the time for free, just and uh, just to be around the job. And uh, but my parents, you know, they they grew up in the depression, and most people who grew up in the depression who didn't have, you know, a lot of uh, uh, wealth behind them, got depressed and never really got over it, and they they got very defensive about. Uh, the work environment you know when you went to school you had to pass scholarship because that 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 scholarship was the level you passed then in my era that gave you uh, a job if you couldn't get a, a pass in scholarship you weren't going to get any kind of job of any meaning and then what they used to say if you didn't have wealth the thing you had to do was get a government job because government jobs were secure Yep. You, you know that even when, when things are bad, the government jobs are secure mostly because, you know, government want people to vote for them, so they they keep those at least those jobs. They're the ones they could make they could make sure maintain. So they um, you know uh, harassed me about getting a government job, and eventually um, I, I applied for the Queensland Government Railways and uh, to become a learn to become a station master, and to my horror, got accepted. And, uh, and then I spent two years in that institution and uh, until I couldn't stand it anymore and I uh, wrote out a resignation, bolted and went to the bush you know So what what hmm. age are we now? What, what are you talking at that? Uh, um, 15, 17, 18 I'm thinking.
1: Okay, so was it by then you're riding in a few rodeos and shows and things?
0: Yeah, yeah I, I um, was uh, involved with a family called Whitaker. Whitakers from Maribor, and they had four four boys, and uh, the youngest of the boys, him and I went to school together, and so I, I attached to him like like a, I can say a leech? But I I, you know, I attached myself to him, and and I used to go down there, and they had a team of bucking bulls and saddlebumps, and they had bullet teams and, and we said work in timber and stuff like that and and they would buy and sell horses that other people were having and cattle that other people were having difficulty with and it just really kind of suited me that that environment so I kind of moved in on them and they, they kind of tolerated me because I used to make myself as handy as I possibly could every took to them in when we were working and stuff and I spent about like, uh, oh, five odd years, I suppose, with them. And they would, we would go off to rodeos from there. And, uh, you know, as far as you could drive over the weekend kind of deal. Yep. And, uh, yeah, that's how I got, got involved in, uh, in rodeoing, but, you know, didn't do a wonderful job of that. We never had any tuition as such. You just got a leg either side of them and, and, uh, I didn't know any prayers much in those days, so you just kind of got one leg either side and did the best you could, kind of deal.
1: Yeah, right. So we're talking riding bullocks and saddle Bronx or whatever it yeah,
0: was. Yeah, I tried to do every little everything. I tried to ride bullocks, and we used to, know that era, it was bullocks in the go around and some five, four or five or six bulls for the final. Yep. And, uh, you know, saddle broncs, bareback broncs. I did try, I tried bulldogging a little too, but gee, I only weighed about nine stone. I was only a little critter. Yep, and uh, yeah, I didn't fare that great at that. Got got busted up some trying to do that.
1: Right, so uh, so where, when, and where did the seed get planted that you could make a go of training horses, mate?
0: Well, all the time um, on the way through, I was sort of obsessed with lightness of feel and seeing how what I could get a horse to do with as little you know pressure or force as as possible, and it was kind of an obsession, I, I, I don't know where that came from. It was just there. It's always been there. And, uh, to the extent that some people would say, you know, stop annoying that horse. You know, you're always trying to annoy it. You're always doing something with it kind of deal. And, uh, so that, that was, was always there when I was riding. Uh, I, I used to, um, work for a dairy farm up the road from me on, on, um, uh, a, a lot, quite a lot. And, um, One of the jobs there was to take the dairy cows out on this big, what is now called Yolula Park. It's a big park in Meribyr. But uh, it was just a big open area in those days and was, uh, you know, free grass for the dairy farmer. So he'd have me on an old horse with a sack bag, you know, just a bridle and no saddling. I'd take the cows off out after milking and and I'd uh, graze them out on this area until four o'clock and then I'd bring them back in for their evening milking. So that's where I kind of got a lot of, could spend a lot of time out there whilst the cows were grazing, you know, trotting around trees and figuring out how, how to get a horse to canter and how to get him to stop and how to get him to turn left and turn right. And I and spent the next 40 years trying to hone that somewhat. So did you have any information at that point, mate, or was it all just flying blind? Yeah, flying blind. I pretty much tried to do the things that people wouldn't laugh at me for doing and avoid the things they would laugh at me for doing pretty much. And uh, it a lot of ridicule back then. You remember I was on the very bottom end of the, the, you know, the feed food chain there. And uh, so, you know, you cop a fair bit of ridicule and stuff like that from the people and you know, have horses and have tuition and so forth. So um, now I just uh, tried to figure out what would work and what wouldn't work. And I think that's has stood me in good stead over a long period. But having said that, I suppose in my defence, there wasn't an awful lot of people back there that would tell you anything much. It yeah. wasn't instruction as we have it today. Yeah. And um, so it was kind of hard to to find someone that could even if they they seemed fairly good at what they were doing, they didn't have weren't articulate enough to to uh, lay it down for you in some sort of structured lesson, you know. Yep. So was it somewhere around there you started to don the jodpas
1: like you you wanted to know all about the English side of things?
0: Oh, no, that came came a little bit later on when I um, when I uh, got to start more professionally and, and decided that the the more I knew about different events, the more uh, business I could maybe attract or the better job I could do for someone that bought, say, a dressage horse to me or, or a hack or, or, or a polar cross horse or whatever. If I had some insight and I'd competed in those events to, to some degree, I had some insight into what their expectations might be. So, so what age were you when you hung your shingle out? Oh, gee, I was for, uh, formally uh, uh, probably I was, I was 30. Yeah, yeah. There was a period in there where I went to the bush and uh, and did the rural deal. I I really, I didn't expect ever to be a horse trainer. I expected to have a future in the in the uh, cattle industry because cattle, to me, cattle and horses went together. There wasn't, there didn't seem at that point to be a, a separate industry that was called the horse industry. It was. It was either the racing industry or, or, or the cattle industry. And it was, of course, pony clubs, as you would know, but there wasn't a big leisure industry as we see it today. That that came along pretty much in the 70s. Yep. And I'm talking now back before the 70s, you know. Um, so I, I went to the cattle industry and I, I thought my f- that's where my future lay. And by the time I was 23 years old, I was managing, uh, you know, smaller cattle properties. I wasn't managing Victoria River Downs and things like that, but I was managing uh, some smaller cattle properties. And I kind of thought that's about where my where my uh, future w- would probably lie, you
1: know? And so what, did you just grow organically, mate? Well, you are doing a good enough job here and there. All of a sudden you had two horses, four horses, six horses, and then thought you'd make a go of it is that how it went well
0: i used to uh i always had uh, you know obsession with horses so i would take jobs where i could take a horse or two of my own and uh you know i would just uh, work with those and then market one of those and then buy in an, and uh and an one and go again just as a means of supplementing my income but um where that changed was uh in the beef depression, the beef depression come along in, in mid seventies, and there was a big slump in in the rural sector, and nothing was really happening. You couldn't get hardly any money at all for cattle. And, uh, and at, at that particular time, I was offered the opportunity to manage uh, a quarter horses. And I'm thinking this is about I'm I'm going to say 1975, seventy six, I, I think. Yeah, and. um They uh, brought me down there to run that. I'd had work for them previously on cattle operations, and they'd observed that I could get around horses reasonably well. And And also, too, that they had a bit of insight into my personality, and they thought they could control me pretty easily. I wasn't too argumentative and stuff so yeah they, they they offered me that job and that brought me into the western side of things up till then i stopped dealing, i'd been camp drafting some marketing courses as a camp draft job and then i came into the western side of it when i came to calora you know right so tell me you, you had a main mentor
1: from nevada a man called lee Rabors. when did he come into your life and what was that impact
0: Oh, he, I think he turned up in the in the kind of late 60s. Him and his brother Clyde came out from Nevada and he'd, he'd won the, the cow horse, um, rain cow horse classes at the Cow Palace in Nevada when the Cow Palace was the mecca for rain cow horse people back there. And he won every, I think he won every, uh, like the to snap a bit in the bridle and the hackamore classes there. And he was very highly regarded and maybe in the top three or four cow horse men at that period and he, he got him and his brother come out here to go ranching, and in their words, this was they saw this as one of the last frontiers in those days, where there was big opportunities, and um, later on in life, I heard that they uh, they got out of uh, Nevada a little bit ahead of the stock squad, they'd been up to a bit of mischief there with cattle, evidently, and they came out, and they, they went to Finnish River in the Northern Territory, and it's only 100 k's outside of Darwin, and was just clean skin, unbranded cattle everywhere. And the story goes that Clyde, Clyde turned to Lee and said, Lee, we've come to Cal Thief's Paradise. <laughs> and uh, the man that told me said they proceeded to brand every uh, unbranded uh, head of cattle between Finnish River and the main street of Darwin.
1: Oh, I get so, um,
0: and uh, that went on pretty good until the Beef Depression. But uh, Lee turned up back at around Crystal Waters at Marlborough about that time You know, in the late 70s. And that's where I got got to uh, meet him and go to go to some schools. And, uh, you know, I really admire Lee. I, I don't think he was the best instructor that I come across. He wasn't wonderfully articulate, but I I, I, I think I'm reasonably observant and I managed to observe the way he did things. And I have Im- images even today in my mind of him working a horse. And I just tried to emulate the effect he was achieving with his horses, and that's where that all came together. Mm.
1: So when I think of an Ian Francis-trained horse, I think of a resistance-free neck, um, very in the bridle. Was that a, a Lee-style horse, mate?
0: Yeah, that was Lee, yeah. It was it, Lee didn't teach us a whole lot about what went on in the back end, or at least I didn't get that lesson at that time. It was very much about be, putting – what we call a handle on one, you know, getting them responsive to the bridle, getting them resistance-free and being able to put them where we wanted to put them. Um, and that that's kind of absorbed the first ah, 15, maybe 20 years, 15 years anyhow of uh, my career in in developing and, and developing that. It wasn't until a little bit later on I got to thinking more about the back end and, and what I could do with that and I guess that came. That came from the fact that my my approach is always if I'm doing something on a horse, always ask myself: Is there something I can do better? Or is there something I can get the horse to do better? Or is there something else I can add to this that might make it better? And um, that led me to to looking towards the back end a little bit later on. You know. Right. Oh. So um,
1: at at that start in your first full time job. Uh, is this the days when you went to a show
0: and you competed in everything mate sort of like the lead the lot yeah yeah that's true like I I, you know I I tried to as you know I tried to ride in rodeo somewhat early on and and I got to be a rodeo judge and stuff and uh, and I would go to some of these little agricultural shows in southeast Queensland and I would ride in the hack classes in the morning in, in the in English gear and and then I'd ride in the working stock horse classes and the Western performance classes. And in those days, you could show stock horses and paints and appaloosas and quarter horses and, and whatever. And the and the uh, committees would wait for you to get from one, one ring to the other to show a horse. It doesn't happen these days, but they would back then. And I'd also, because the committees knew I'd be there, I'd get to judge quite a lot of their bullock rides and whatever rodeo events they had in conjunction with the shows. Well, I used to make damn sure I was out of an English gear before those cowboys turned
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, so the Ian Francis that I know, and I don't know the whole picture, was predominantly a quarter horse man in Western events. Was that a conscious choice not to go down the stock horse, polo, polo cross route or camp draft route?
0: Not not really because early on I was taking whatever it took to pay the mortgage and feed the kids, you know, if they they wanted to bring a horse and I felt like I could, uh, you know, make a reasonably good job of what they needed, I would take it. So I was riding, as I said, like paints and appaloosas yep. and stock horses and quarter horses and so forth. And, um, it, and that makes it pretty busy when you're doing like the, the uh, big sales at the end of the year. You go to Rockhampton quarter horse sale in November with a whole wing of horses, and then you'd come back and line up to another whole wing of horses for Dolby in December. and It just put an enormous load on and then it got to be eventually where the committees uh, and the associations didn't really want to uh, wait around for people from other rings. And they started making it a little bit less easy for us to show that those number of horses. And, and I, I guess at some point I had to make a choice about where I was going. Well, well back in that era, not many of the stock horse people would uh, pay you to take a horse down the road. The court horse people would, the Appaloosa people would, the paint horse people would, but the stock horse people were still back in in the, in the mindset where you would drop a horse off to Scott Keogh or, or one of their mates would to break it in, and or as they would call it then, and they you you would bring them up and say, well, this horse's ready to go, and they'd say, I just chuck him out in the paddock and we'll we'll get him later, and uh, or you know you can send him up to Warwick as old mate, and I'll pick him up there, and then they might. Well, they won't have a checkbook when they get there, and you might get paid for it in twelve months' time. Yep. You know, and if you charge them for adjustment, they'd have a have a fainting attack. Yeah. You know, they weren't geared to to the industry, and and uh, in, weren't geared to thinking of uh, horsemanship or horse training as, or whatever as business. It yep. was always just a sideline for someone. Yep. And it was usually someone that was pretty broken. And, uh, yeah, no one had much respect for them in a business sense, you know. Absolutely. It took a long time for the stock horse industry to gain any respect for, you know, horse trainers or horsemen in, in a business sense.
1: Yep. So the quarter horses, you know, whether it's by default or choice, that become your angle, um, yeah,
0: yeah, because mostly those people, a lot of them people were businessmen, hey. Yep. And and uh, you, you, yeah, they owned a horse which they couldn't go show themselves, but they were businessmen, and, and you could at least put a business like proposition to them, like you. I do my job. You you pay me. You know uh, when I send the accounts out, always in fourteen days or some such. That that was unheard of in the stock horse industry.
1: Yep. Okay. So uh, moving along to when things are getting a little better. Was raining sort of your first go? Like you were a rainer before
0: a cutter, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, mostly because uh, I couldn't supply the cattle numbers. Back then I was living out at Widgie near Gympie and I could get a certain number of cattle, but I didn't feel like I could get the volume of cattle to s- supply uh, a, a, a team of cutting horses. I might maybe value do one, but you can't take your truck down the road with one and make a profit. Yeah, do have a business to run still, and it was more that I could do more uh, reining horses and more cow horses and more Stockman's Challenge type it was Like Stockman's Challenge hadn't been involved in, at that time than I could I could cutters, and uh, and it just so happened that um, the reining was evolving as a, as an individual sport about that time, and uh, it, it, cow horse reined cow horse was on the wane. And uh, raining became the fastest uh, equine growing sport at that particular time. and it just so happened that I, that it seemed it did seem to fit me pretty well. Someone who could put a pretty nice handle on a horse and have put some, some kind of style on a horse had a bit of a a bit of a leg into that job, you know.
1: Yeah right. Well, you're very successful at it. I think you won five for Mm-hmm. When and where did you get the cutting bug?
0: Oh, I, I guess that was always there, and, and what I, I – uh, well, I'll go right back. I Way back in, in the uh, very early 70s, I had a horse called King's Gold, and uh, Cellicini, he lived on, about 25 miles from, from my house, and he was certainly one of the big names in the cutting horse industry and you know, did an awful lot to establish cutting in Australia. And uh, he would come to my house, and we had Paul Herford cattle in those days that pretty quiet and uh, were good to work. And he would come there was and sometimes Lee Rebors would come there, and they would work cattle for a day or two. And I I got to uh, train King's Goal. I trained him to do every damn thing, but he you could put your hand down on him and he would uh, cut a cow. So I, I I went to a few cuttings in that era, but I, I cut when I came came to be a professional trainer. I just knew I wasn't going to be able to you have the volume of cattle to do it. And, and back then, mechanical cows really weren't developed and the only mechanical cows they had back then was someone pedalling a push bike yep. and uh, running a, a bit of rag backwards and forwards. There was no mechanical cows as such. So um, I just didn't see, see that I could do do a really great job. So I didn't go there, you know?
1: Okay. So when, when and why did you go there? Like, did you get more established um, or...?
0: I, I bought a mare for a fellow called Stephen King one time called Spindle, and um, uh, I bought her sight unseen, which I very rarely do, but I, I did uh, bought her off a guy I had a, a fair bit of uh, faith in, and um, he, I said to him what are her legs like, and he said, oh, yeah, she's a little offset in one front leg. And When she arrived, she a little bit became a lot. She was pretty much offset in that one leg, and I didn't figure she was going to – stand up to the rigors of all the loping and so forth that went on with uh, raining. So, But I recall him saying to me, she's pretty nice on a cow this mare. So I got some cattle in and and she was more than pretty nice. She was pretty outstanding on a cow. So I started um, working her on a cow and, uh, and eventually, I got David Hogg, who was a friend of mine that won the futurity way back, and come by one day and have a look. And I said, I think i will got something kind of special here. And so he come by and said, yeah, you do. And so uh, I finished up uh, training her through and uh, took her to the NCHA futurity in 91, which was the first time I ever went there, and won the futurity on, on her. And uh, so that's kind of... Where, where I got a, a start there and I, I did train cutters for a few years after that and then I took a break from it because uh, a lot of people weren't paying their bills and business got a bit stressed and I didn't handle the situation very well. I just hunted everybody instead of uh, thinking my way through it a bit more clearly. I could have I done a better job at that. All right. So when, when did Rocky Sail
1: become a big part of your business?
0: Right from day one when I started the business in about 1980, I managed Calora Quarter Horses for a couple of years, and then the beef industry got back on its feet, and I went back to the beef industry, but I got inundated with an qu- inquiry to, to do horses because I wanted quite a bit of stuff for Calora. And um, and it kind of started taking over my life, and I had to make a decision about whether I was going to stay in the, in the beef industry or whether I was going to go and uh, – have a look at the horse industry, and I've always sort of been a bit interested in challenges. And by this time, I'd got into motivational stuff and uh, positive thinking and stuff like that. So I I was kind of ready, seemed like I was ready for another challenge. So in 1980, I uh, started my training stables at Widgie. Well, part of that job, I'd already done two, two sales or three sales, I think, at Rocky by then when I was still in the beef industry, doing just a small group of horses. When I went out professional, we started doing big teams of horses, like anything, from 18 to 35. And uh, for the next, like, 16 or 17 years, we did big teams of horses for Rocky. It must have been, yeah, full-on
1: periods, big. Oh, yeah. Big days. Like, you're talking you riding 20-plus yourself every day.
0: Yeah, I would ride anything from 22 to 27 a day, but then, I, you know, I had people, really good people uh, feeding and saddling up and hosing down and doing the, uh, yeah, putting them back in, in and I was just jumping, going from one horse to another, but you would work from seven in the morning or maybe even earlier than that, right through at 11 o'clock at night, and uh, I, if I had, you know, say 30, I might ride 22 of them, and then the girl's, or well, the young guys that were working there would uh, just poke the other ones up into the forestry and just give them rides out on alternate days, you know? Yep. And that's how we kind of got through them,
1: yeah. Yeah, right. And then somewhere in there you managed to win two Cloncurry Stockman's Challenges
0: as well? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I was pretty much involved in designing the Stockman's Challenge at Cloncurry and the ones at Woodgie Futurities, but I didn't go – for the first 13 years, I think it was, I, I didn't even go to Cloncurry to compete. And One of my girls working for me said one day, How come, well, when are you going to go up there and win that challenge? I said, Well, when i got a horse I think it's good enough to go. And uh, I uh, I got a little mare called uh, Star Carousel and, and Heather Pascoe, who was Heather Brown in those days. She was one that was instrumental in, in thinking up an event for Cloncurry as a tribute to her father. And uh, this mare happened to belong to her, so I thought it was appropriate we'd go with her and, and, yeah, she was the first one I took there and was fortunate enough to win on her.
1: So tell me, and this is probably a hard one, what would you say is the best horse you've ever rode, Ian?
0: Oh, gee, you know, that is, it, it is tough. You know, you have people say you only get one good horse in your lifetime, but gee, when you, when you get exposed to an awful lot of horses like I have been, you'll you'll get to see a lot, lot, lot more than one exceptional horse. But I, I, I guess the the one that kind of stands out really, I guess, is is one hell of a spin. But that in saying that, that's a bit unfair to, to quite a few other horses too, you know? Yep. Um, there, there was a horse called King's Gold way back that I started, he was the first quarter horse I, I started. That would have been in the in the seventies. And um, he taught. I learned a lot of him. I made every mistake known to man on him, and he was very forgiving. And uh, you could do, you know, rain cow horse, working stock horse, um, you know, trail, um, western riding, cutting, you know, whatever, whatever you wrote him in English gear, did everything on him, and he did a pretty damn nice job of, of everything you know, just uh, an outstanding individual. And, and I think he, he would probably be the horse that really gave me a leg up in, into the, the horse industry. And uh, then there was another, there was old reigning horse, uh, Amory Rock and Return was in his era. He was a, a dominant horse, um, you know, uh, doc Pepper Toy, highest money winning horse in her at the time when and held that for quite some time. Um, yeah, there, there was some... Really, really exceptional horses. In amongst them, there are one Roman Pepto is the cutter. Yeah, outstanding horse. You know, yeah, Gigi Coles was in in her time highest money winning maturity horse up to that point. So there were some awfully nice horses in there, and, and I'm probably overlooking a few that I didn't maybe do as get as do as good a job of um, uh, promoting them as maybe I could have. They are pretty memorable too. You know, what about is there is there a
1: part of you that wished you had a crack at, you know, a goal carp, or took the drafting a little more
0: seriously? Yeah, there, there is. But, um, you know, I, I made a rule for myself very early on that I wouldn't go unless I was prepared, you know, like unless I was uh, armed and dangerous, if that's the right word. I found it difficult to um, just cover everything. I was covering an awful lot of stuff as I, as I was. And I never wanted to go somewhere ill prepared, and I never ever got prepared enough to go there. But yes, yeah, the answer to that is yes. Okay, mate. So uh, look, you had you had the you know big
1: career as as a rider and a trainer, and we all know that's very glamorous and short hours and lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so, when and where did did the clinics just go crazy? Because you you basically what you've been. Clinic and flat out for what ten
0: years, fifteen years? Yeah, ten, oh well, flat out. Yeah, I've been doing clinics flat since, out since sometime in the seventies, but uh, just doing what spare weekends, and there weren't many of them. But what spare weekends were through the year, we'd slot a clinic into do somewhere. But um just flat out came after two thousand and ten, and uh what happened there was um, equitana Asia Pacific had uh, tried to get Clinton Anderson to come out and. Uh, do Asia, Equitana and that's in November or thereabouts and of course that's the time of the year when the reigning futurity and the cutting futurity and the national finals rodeo on and all that big stuff goes on in the United States and he just didn't want to come out and I don't think the exchange rate was all that wonderful and I don't think he wanted to come out for various reasons based around that stuff and so someone said to him well why don't you get the guy that taught him he's just he's a ha- boy hanging up around there in Queensland, you might get him, and you get him a lot cheaper. So uh, they approached me and, uh, and said, would I do uh, headline Epitano Asia Pacific? And I just said, oh, yeah. And I didn't really think about the magnitude of it. I didn't really know that much about what it was, to be real honest, and I just said, oh, yeah. And until uh, I got a call from Guy McLean, who was in the United States, and uh, he said, uh, I just rang you to say congratulations. And I said, oh, really? What? What for? And he said, Be, being the first Australian to headline Equitana Asia Pacific. And I said, wow, and thought about that. And um, and then I got to thinking about it, and that got to worrying me a bit and thinking, well, if i go and make a mess of this, I'll never use an Australian ever again, you know. So I had to get to and uh, really start thinking about what kind of job I was going to do and how I was going to do it. So thankfully, he did contact me because I didn't really uh, have in my mind just how big a job that really was. And it went off pretty well, and the inquiry for clinics kind of blew out. Just we're getting massive inquiry for clinics, and I'm a bit of a believer in momentum. And uh, it was also at a it was sort of stage where I was looking for new challenges and, and looking at a change, a bit of a change of direction. And uh, so yeah, I just jumped on on the surfboard and went surfing. You know, while the surf was up, yep. sort of deal. Yeah.
1: Look, as a riding coach, which you, which you are now. What's a generic um, issue that you see fifty weekends a year? What what advice would you give to the young
0: rider coming through? Um, I, I think they don't think enough and they don't, you know, apply himself enough and and, and, and study enough on things like form to function, what makes what makes a horse tick, what what's the What's the form or, or the body position and foot foot position a horse might need to be in to do something? Uh, and I think they don't uh, think enough about a horse's degree of intelligence and figure out how they might use that. And I think they're the couple of things that uh, that I think are prevalent right through the job. And I think too, um, when we say about how how much work this job is, and I, I get it when I. When people look for jobs with me, they say, oh, yes, I'll work, and I'm committed, I'm this and I'm that, and after two weeks, they're looking for some time off for our rest and recreation. Yep. Doesn't much exist in our job. No, it doesn't. (laughs) You
1: know? No, look, you've had a fabulous uh, career, Ian, and so so for the people that, you know, meet you, you know, one weekend a year or whatever – you get a lot of kick out of your cattle, mate. You, you, you're passionate about the land. Tell, just tell us
0: what makes Ian Francis want to go to 50 clinics a year? Um, partly because I, I think it would be, it'd be a bit remiss of me to, to, you know, lay down and die and not pass on the knowledge that, that I've uh, uh, attained because I, rem- I still remember back to when I was a kid not finding people willing to, to help and not you know, not finding people that would uh, that would be really uh, giving with their information. I leave the thing that I, I admired a lot about Lee Reborts. He would if you asked him a question, he would answer it to the very best of his ability. There's nothing in about Lee about, you know, withholding information and And, uh, you know, you're having the feeling that Lee didn't want to tell you at all in case you come back and beat him. And someone said to him about, I might have even said, I don't recall, but about that. And he said, well, I always figure if if I give you all the information I have and if you're good enough within a, you know, matter of months or even a couple of years to come along and, and whip me, you're going to do it anyhow. You're going to go find it. If you had that kind of motivation, that kind of drive, you're going to get that done anyhow. So far better when you, uh, you know, are asked about it, you say, well, I really appreciate the fact that Lee Rebors, you know, uh, took the time to help me and and help me to this position. So I I really appreciate that about about Lee and I kind of took that attitude on, you know, I never ever felt really threatened by giving out information on on anything at all related to training a horse. I I was a little bit tentative about it and I still am to a little extent that I... I might believe in something but w- that might turn out to be not quite correct. I might be misleading someone by telling them what I'm telling them, but I've got to the stage of thinking, well, uh, I'm explaining it how I th- I believe it to be and how I understand it to be. and That's about the best I can do with it, you know?
1: Yep. No, well, you've always been very generous with your knowledge. So uh, uh, just before we close, I've got to tell my Ian Francis story. Oh, yeah. And you wouldn't remember this, but anyhow, it's um, – gosh – 10 15 years ago, whatever, I've just stuck my neck out and started doing the odd clinic here and there. And um, as a coach, and and I'd been to one or two or three of Ian's and and just sort of started to pal up with Ian. And uh, but I don't really know him. Um, And out of the blue, the Toowoomba Farm Fest, which is an agricultural show, has called me up to do demos. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is is my first gig. This is this is kind of pretty cool, anyhow. uh, Lo and behold, that night the phone rings and. It's Ian Francis. You know how you talk like that, and uh, I'm like, "Oh shit, I've took his job." I'm, I'm thinking this guy's ringing me up to chew me out. And <laughs> Ian goes, uh, "Young man, um, I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be at that Toomba Farm Fest, and uh, and I'm gonna be asking a few questions too." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and he goes, um, "Firstly, I'm gonna ask if you've got really big balls. Where do you tuck them when you're right?" Did I say that? (laughs) Yes, you did. And uh, he started laughing, and he said, "Good on you, mate. You're sticking your head out there. You're having a go. Are you saving your money?" And and I hung up that phone on cloud nine.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I'm still surprised I said that. (laughs) Every now and again, someone tells me something like that that you said, and I think, "Wow, did I say that?"
1: Yeah, I was on cloud nine, mate. I truly was. For someone of your stature to say, "Good on you, young fella," you know, I'm. I probably didn't know which end to put the bridle on, but uh, mm. you were there supporting me anyhow, and uh, that's definitely something that I, I admired from you, you know, very very early in the piece. Like I said, uh, gold buckles don't mean you're a good person. So, Ian, uh, I, I want to thank you personally for being a friend of mine, um, and, I, and I know you've, you've helped many of many of people out there. Uh, I keep telling you, you need to make another DVD. Yep um and you've got so much to give mate to the industry Mm. um whether it's with horse help or just uh or just uh having a yarn to a bloke so um Mm. i've uh i've really enjoyed your time this morning Ian. Mm. and um hopefully it's not too long till we catch up again
0: okay well thank thank you for those compliments uh one of the things that i i'm I'm a great admirer of is is of people that have a go and i'm always looking to support someone that'll have a go because so much uh, young people today tend to uh, feel like they're entitled to this or entitled to that. Uh, anyone I see, you see out there trying to, uh, you know, grow from s- small beginnings to something significant. Um, yeah, great, great admirer of uh, people that have a go, and i am always been a great admirer of success, of course, too. So I guess that's what drives that, hey?
1: I think that says it all about the man, folks. So if you haven't already got to an Ian Francis clinic, um. Make sure you do. Sadly, he's not going to live to be 200. Or get out there and grab one of a copy of his DVDs because he truly is uh, one of Australia's treasures and world class. Don't just think that he's the best guy back here. He, he might be the best guy anywhere. So um, we really appreciate your time, Ian, and uh, wish you all the best, mate. Thanks, Scott.
0: Appreciate your time, mate. Cheers, Ian. See you, mate. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications, specializing in rural business and marketing design. Find them on Facebook and Instagram.